I was at lunch with Anna and her husband, Dave, and, and Anna was like, Brian, I just, I got to tell you this story. You know, and as a pastor, I was comforting because, you know, we've, we do reach month twice a year to where I just encourage you to share your faith with one person. Just share what Jesus has done in your life with one person that God has already placed around you. It could be a, a coworker. It could be a family member. It could be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a grandchild. It could be a neighbor. One person that you're wondering, God, why did you put this person in my life? And the answer is God says, I just want you to share Jesus with them. And if you're like me and if you're like Anna, I think we think, eh, I don't know if God can ever reach blank. I want you to know, not only can God reach them, but God does reach them. And so heading in next month, which begins next week, we're going to spend a portion of our service every Sunday praying for one name. For God to give each of us one name. One name that we can share what Jesus has done in our life with them. And, and I'm confident that if we all did that, there's gonna, there may be some funky people coming to church. <laughs> but I'm confident in your ability to welcome all people to this church where they can not only hear about who Jesus is, but see his power at work in your life. And I ask, prayer, just start praying. Forgot to give you one name. Next week, we'll have a board out front asking you to write their first name on the board so that I can be praying with you. And let's see what God can do. If a thousand people share Jesus with one person, the impact of that, I think, could be astounding. Will you join me and pray? Let's pray together. Uh, again, God, we are here as a church. God, many of us, because we believe in your power, we believe in not only what you accomplished in our life, but God, what we believe that you uh, can do in the lives of others. God, we're grateful for your love, for your mercy. It allows broken people like us to come together as friends, together as friends with you. God, now we ask you just use the remainder of our time. God, continue to draw us closer together, closer to you. Give us eyes to see you more clearly, ears to hear your word. And God, give us, give us a heart, God, that we might apply it in our life today. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. As we um, go into our, our text this week, I want to begin with a question. When was the last time that you lost confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it in your life? When is the last time that you lost confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it in your life? Maybe, maybe it's just even in this reach one where you're confident that there's no way God can use you to preach the gospel clearly to this person in a way that they're going to see Jesus clearly and give their life to Christ. And as a result, we never talk about Jesus with anyone. Maybe Maybe it's that. Maybe it's in your marriage. You feel like you've reached the point of no return. 
And you just don't think God has the ability to renew and restore. Maybe it's with a child, a grandchild, a friend. We feel like they've just gone too far. Their hearts hardened too much. God can't reach them. Maybe it's culture. You know, Brian, California is just too kooky now. I mean, there's no hope for the cause of Christ in California. Where, when is the last time that you lost confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it in your life? See, I think the truth is all of us have experienced something that's rattled our faith. Grave disease, financial hardship, something that rattles culture. There's always something that just seems to undermine our faith and confidence in what God wants to do. There's times of triumph in everyone's Christian life and there's times of tragedy and, dis and discomfort as well. The question is, what do we do? It's easy to respond to God when everything's going well. How do we respond when things aren't? And that's what I love about this next passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 12. Just a reminder, if you consider yourself a child and you would like a children's pack, um, want to keep pushing those, just raise your hand. Our ushers are in the back. They'd be more than happy to bring you one. Uh, fill out those little sheets. Take them to the cafe for a sweet treat. That also gives you a sermon sucker just to keep you busy. Um, while you read God's word with us. So raise your hand, Kyle's back there. Got to raise it high if you're little. Um, all right, so Acts chapter 12. Here's how it begins. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse one. Look what it says. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, I want to make sure you understand the, at the very beginning of the passage, it says, now about that time. And that's there for a reason, because it wants us to draw our attention. Luke, the author, wants us to draw attention to the very beginning, to the chapter before. He wants to draw our attention to the chapter before. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 11. We went over it last week. Antioch, right? It's this godless city known for its hunger for money, known for its lust for pleasure, known for its corruption and godlessness. I mean, you have Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire that was just dead sent in opposition to God. But then some ordinary people, right? No one famous, no authors, no megachurch pastors, no Christian athletes, just ordinary people, nameless, went into Antioch, started talking about Jesus, changed the city. Had such an influence and such an impact in that godless city that the city didn't even know what to call them. And so they had to create a new word, a new name for this group of people. And for the first time, Christians were, or people, followers of Christ were called Christians in Antioch. So Luke is saying at the same time where God is doing amazing things in Antioch, at the same time where the church is growing, 
by leaps and bounds, where this amazing triumph is taking place in Antioch, 300 miles away, a group of Christians are experiencing something completely different. As Antioch, Christians in Antioch are seeing God move in powerful ways. Christians in Judea, they're hurting. And I was thinking, man, isn't that how it is in our world too? You have churches in some regions that are thriving and growing, yet at the same time on the other side of the world, there's Christians being persecuted for their faith daily. As we're sitting here in comfort and peace, reading God's word in confidence, there's Christians on the other side of the world reading the Bible in fear and worry about what the gospel what consequence it will bring for their family and their children. See, the reality is there's going to be times of triumph in our Christian life and there's going to be times of tragedy. And when there's times of tragedy and times of hardship, how do we respond? And how do we have confidence in God's plan? Now, about the same time, the Antioch was experiencing this amazing movement of God. At that same time, 300 miles away, Herod the king decided to go after Christians. Now, Herod, King Herod's an interesting guy. His grandfather, King Herod's grandfather, was the one who, when Jesus was born, decided to kill all the babies. Remember that? That was this King Herod's grandpa. This King Herod's grandpa killed his dad. King Herod's dad was killed in order to protect the throne. So this King Herod's grandpa not only killed all these babies, this King Herod's grandpa killed his own son. This King Herod ended up going to Rome, became friends with the imperial family, had a reputation of being a playboy, was in immense debt, so had to flee Rome for a time because his creditors were coming after him. He ended up in prison for saying some unflattering things about then Emperor Tiberius. But then Tiberius died and this King Herod's friend Caligula, who is a piece of work on his own, look him up if you dare, let King Herod out and gave him a place to rule. This King Herod was a politician. He would, he would steal. He would murder. He'll do whatever it takes to keep peace in his region and keep power in his family. In the area of Judea, King Herod was committed to keeping peace with the Jewish leadership. So knowing that this Christian movement, this movement of Christ was causing some disunity within the Jewish infrastructure, King Herod laid hands on, that's a Greek word for started to rough up people, started arresting some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. In verse 2, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. You remember James and John? 
Sons of Thunder, one of the first Christians with a helicopter parent. You know that? Put your thumb in Acts. Flip over to the first book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Let me just remind you of something Jesus said. Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Right, so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, right? They were just known for this attitude. There came this moment, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, love this, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request. And he said to her, what do you wish? He knew, he knew mom was up to something. What do you want? She said to him, command, make this rule, make it now, early on. Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Hey, make my two boys your favorite. Make my two boys, make them kind of your protector. All right, verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, that I am about to drink? Are you going to be able to endure what I endure? Like, do you really want to be a part of what I'm doing? They said to him, we're able. Verse 23, he said, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and to sit on my left, this is not mine to give. But it's for those whom it has been prepared by my father. James and John, yeah, you're going to suffer. That where you sit in the kingdom, that's not up to me. It was that James became the first of the apostles to die. We continue to read now in Acts chapter 12, when he, talking about Herod the king, when Herod the king saw that it pleased the Jews, when he killed James and saw how happy they were, Right, his polls just shot through the roof. Hey, my approval rating, they love this. Let's go again. He proceeded to arrest Peter. Man, if they, want, if they loved me killing James, just wait. Wait till I get Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out before the Lord or bring him out before the people. Yeah, think about this. By the way, I want you to make sure the days of unleavened bread is the same season that they arrested Jesus. You remember that? Hey, you think about the church, right? First, James, an apostle, he's killed, but now they arrested Peter. I mean, he's the rock. He's the one with the keys, He's the foundation of the church, the leader of the movement. And they arrested him the exact same time they arrested Jesus. With the exact same purpose. And if you look at this, it's a pretty hopeless situation. It says there's four squads of soldiers to guard him. Sixteen Roman soldiers for one guy. Four Four-hour shifts of four soldiers. Later, it's going to say they have Peter chained between two guards. So he's chained to one guard on his left, 
chained to another guard on his right. You have two more guards at the gate watching, and you're thinking, man, isn't that overkill? I mean, what's all the fear? What's all the worry? I mean, from the Christian's perspective, this is hopeless. He's doomed. He's done. He's never getting out. But you read that and wonder, why is Herod putting so many soldiers, who most believe it's because what happened the last time Peter was in jail? You remember that? Let's go back. Again, let's put our thumbs in Acts chapter 12. Let's go back to Acts chapter 5. Let me just remind you, because it's been a while. This is early on in the church, in the movement of God in Jerusalem. The religious leaders were getting really frustrated and upset with these apostles, with these Christians. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17, look what happened. Acts 5, 17, but the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail, but, huge biblical but right there, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates and taking them out said, now go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Keep going. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard, I'm in verse 24, and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, <laughs> you think, Right? about them as to what would come to this. Verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, hey, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers, proceeded to bring them back without violence. So most believe that Herod is like, ah, oh, that's not happening to me. I don't know how those guys got out of their prison. They're not getting out of mine. So King Herod is dead set on keeping Peter on path to being killed. Again, I want to just recap. All of a sudden, these Jews or these Christians in Judea, there's amazing things happening in Antioch. But in Judea, there's trouble. James has already been killed. Peter's arrested in a hopeless situation. He's not getting out. He's going to be killed on an anniversary of when Jesus died. Hopeless and despair. I mean, what that church must have been going through at that time. And that's where we get our first step. When despair, when struggle, what should we do? when we lack confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it, and we see everything going south, what do we do? Let me show you what they did. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison. Big biblical but right there. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church and God. What did this church do? They didn't riot. They didn't seek regime change. 
They didn't freak out and give up. What's the first thing they did? Pray. Not just pray, but they prayed fervently. That term fervently means to stretch out or to strain in reaching out. Man, they laid themselves out before God. They agonized in prayer. Man, the first thing these Christians did was pray fervently. Got me thinking this week. What do you need to be praying about? What do you need to be praying about? If you're like me, when you're in the midst of tragedy, when you're in the heat of the battle, when you're just barely holding on to life, the most absurd thing to do in life, it feels like, is to pray. You need to fight. You need to scratch. You need to claw your way back. I mean, just sitting still and prostrating yourself before God, it just seems odd. And I think so often we make prayer the last resort instead of the first. Where do you need prayer? Some of you are fighting grave illness. You fought medical advice. You've done everything you can in life. Have you prayed? Your family, you've gone to counseling. You've read books. You've gone to rehabs. Have you prayed? We voted. We've recalled. We voted. Have we prayed? There's an old preacher, I don't remember his name, says this quote, let's keep our chins up and our knees down. We have Jesus on our side. It's that attitude, it's that mindset. When tragedy strikes your life, prayer should be our first and most powerful step. When life seems to be crumbling, when you don't understand what God is doing, first thing maybe to consider, respond with prayer. I heard recently someone say, you know what, Brian, our church needs to be more of a church of prayer. And after initially, I got defensive. I was like, well, maybe people don't understand all the opportunities of prayer that we have. We have a prayer chain. Don't know if you know that. Every prayer request that you say is a public prayer request, it goes to over 100 people in our church who have committed to stop everything when that email comes and to pray for you. When you put a prayer request in, it doesn't just go to the pastors. It goes to over 100 people in our church. If you want us to pray with you, let us know. Give us a call. Write something on the card in the seat back in front of you. If you're like, Brian, I, I want to pray for people. Put your information on a card. Give it to a good-looking guy as you leave. Or gal. They'll love it. They'll think it's great. One of the ushers as you leave will put you on the prayer chain. But please, listen, the purpose of the prayer chain isn't to spread church gossip. 
purpose of the prayer chain is to pause your life when those emails come and pray. We have prayer under the crosses every Sunday. Men and women that I know personally, people that you can trust, people that would love to pray with you and walk with you through your difficult times. Every Sunday they're here. We have elders. We pray regularly for people. People say, Brian, I need the elders to come and pray for me. We do that all the time. But it helps me if you say, Brian, I, I, I need elders to pray for me. That's what James encouraged the church. Look at what James, different James. This is the brother of Jesus, James. James 5.14, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church that they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do that. You sick? Your marriage in trouble? You seeking the Lord? I got to tell you, the oil, isn't, it, the oil isn't the powerful part. It's the prayers. Don't want the elders? How about just a fellow Christian? Look what James says a few verses down. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Man, just pray together. The people that you sit around in church every Sunday because we all sit in the exact same places, which I'm not complaining. It allows me to keep track of when you're here and when you're not. <laughs> but get to know the people around you. Pray for them. Pray with them. We also have a monthly prayer time. We gather together here in the sanctuary, first Monday of every month. We pray for the needs of the church, for the needs of people who are there, for the needs of our community that we know of. We pray the beginning of every month, asking and seeking the power of God to be at work in our movement, to give us eyes to see his plan that we might follow it faithfully, protect us as a church from doing something stupid that messes up his testimony, that undermines his movement First thing these Christians did in the midst of their struggle, they prayed. But there's another response that I think oftentimes in this passage is missed, and that's the response of Peter. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, on the very night, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. On that very night, on the very night that, that Peter was going to be marched forward and killed, look at his response. Sleeping. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Roman soldiers, baddest, meanest dudes known to mankind at that time. One on his right, one on his left, two at the door. Peter sleeping, chilling. I have this picture. The night that he's going to die, Peter's taking a nap. He's chilled. He's relaxed. And it makes me wonder, man, what did he know that I don't? 
What does Peter know that I don't? Because I got to tell you, I'm not sure I'd be sleeping right there. For that, let's again go back. Put our thumbs in Acts 12. Let's go back to Acts 4, because I think Acts chapter 4 gives us a little bit of an insight into Peter's mentality. Man, how can someone rest in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the hardest time of his life? Culture's against him. He's about to die. Things aren't going well. How can he just sit there and sleep? Acts chapter 4, again, this is the time Peter and John, remember, they were, they were again called in by the Sanhedrin. They were whipped. They were released. Verse 23, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions. They went to their people, reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices with one accord and they said, Oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, this guy's grandpa, Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, what did Peter know? That we tend to forget. Right after he was released from jail, beaten, his back bloodied, Everyone's celebrating and you're like, look, we're not worried. We know God's in charge. God made everything out of nothing. At the day, the worst day of our lives when Jesus was murdered, all part of the plan. What does Peter understand that we don't? Confident that God's in charge. God's got a plan and the power to complete it, not just in the times of triumph, but in the times of tragedy as well. I wonder if that truth is what the Apostle Paul was trying to share to the church in Philippi in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. I have it on the screen here for you. Paul said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. I love that. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer, there it is again, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And look at the result. When you're anxious for nothing and leaving everything in God's control and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, the peace of God where people look at it and say, how do you do that? What do you know that we don't know? The very thing that we look at Peter and say, we don't get it. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When tragedy strikes, 
when you look around and other Christian homes and other Christian families and other churches are doing great and you feel like you're in the midst of it. Life, culture, family, marriage, confidence, everything's crumbling. Two encouragements so far. Number one, respond with prayer. Man, just make your request known to God. Second, respond with peace. Respond with peace. It's peace that's beyond human comprehension. Because you have confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it. Man, we don't always know what's going on. But the reality is we don't always have to. Because God does. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of struggle, Antioch, everything's going great, but 300 miles away, things are not. But just as we learned things about those ordinary people in Antioch last week, I think there's things to learn from the good people who love Jesus who are in the midst of hardship. I guess for us, the question is, where do we need the peace of God? Where are you anxious? Stirring and laying awake at night. I know I can't be the only one who struggles with sleep. Where do you need the peace of God? Maybe it's with your kids, your grandkids. Maybe it's with culture. Maybe it's with church. You look at church and you're like, oh my gosh, Brian's nuts. I pray that the peace of God fills your heart. We don't always know what God's doing. But God does. Let me keep going in the story. Again, let's go back to verse 6. On that very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door who were watching over the prison, verse 7. And behold, that term behold, right? You circle it. Surprise. It's not what you're expecting. I mean, he's between two Roman soldiers. And there's two at the gate watching the whole time. On four-hour shifts, no one's fallen asleep on four-hour shifts. And behold, surprise, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. By the way, I just want to remind you, here's how soundly Peter is sleeping. An angel shows up, bright lights, Peter, nothing. Has to strike him. By the way, that term strike, it's the same word used to describe what Peter did when he cut off that guy's ear. The same word to describe what Jesus will do when he returns to those who are standing in opposition. This isn't a little tap, it's Peter. It's Peter. Dude, wake up. I just love that. I mean, Peter was so peaceful. He wasn't even ready for an angel to show up. He struck Peter's side, woke him up saying, get up quickly. His chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did. 
And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I feel like I have the same thing with my kids and I have to wake them up early. You got to tell them everything. Put your shoes on. Grab your jacket. Grab your backpack. Come on, let's go, right? I mean, Peter's out of it. Verse 9, he went out and continued to follow. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. First automatic door ever. <laughs> they walk up. <laughs> they went out, went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Verse 11, finally, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all the Jewish people were expecting. Peter says, now I know. That's Peter. Now I know. Jesus rescued me, picked me up out of a precarious position, placed me in an entirely different position in his power, not mine. Peter says, now I know. Story continues. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. There they were, all gathered in this one lady's house. Why that lady's house? She probably was the one at the house that could hold them. Most people didn't have a house that could hold the church. Mary did. They're all there praying. Peter knew. Peter knew where to go. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter was standing in the front gate. Yeah, I love that. This little girl, answer, oh, it's Peter. Forgets to open the door, just runs. Peter, meanwhile, is like, hey, they're looking for me. Let me in, let me in, right? He's still knocking. She goes and tells him, Peter's at the front gate. Listen to what they said, verse 15. They said to her, you're out of your mind. In the Greek, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're mad. You're insane. Foolish kid. Dummy. Stay in your lane, little one. This is grown-up stuff. We're in the heat of battle here. Life's falling apart. This could be the end of our movement. Get out of here. But she kept insisting. She kept telling him, no, 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 he's out there. He's out there. They kept saying, it's his angel. Now, some say they thought, oh, it's his guardian angel. Some people said, no, 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 he's already dead. Regardless, you have this group of people praying in this person's house for God to move. God moved and they weren't ready. You get that? By the way, can I hit pause and look at little Rhoda? This is one of the reasons why I am so passionate about our kids and youth ministry at the church. Because there's something precious and special about the faith of a child. It's so simple, isn't it? 
It's so easy in their head. Well, God said it. Why couldn't he do that? If he created everything out of nothing, why couldn't he say Peter? I mean, they're untainted by fear. I'll share something. Matthew, Matthew chapter 18 reminded me of something Jesus said. He said, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right, you got all these guys walking with Jesus, all fighting to be on his right and his left. Some even have their mom come. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to him. Set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. And why am I so passionate about kids in youth ministry? Number one, it's because of what we can offer them. But secondly, it's because of what they can offer us. It took me seven and a half years to get through seminary. But what God has taught me about himself and about my brokenness through my kids is far greater. There's something precious about a child's faith. And just because it's a small voice, we tend to push them aside. Jesus, super clear, hey, don't push them aside. There's something about them that you don't want to miss. And also for those of you who's like, Brian, I hate going through all of those online trainings we have to do to serve kids. Just remember Jesus' warning. And it's better for someone to put a millstone around their neck and throw themselves off Point Loma than to harm a child. To lead one astray, cause one to stumble. Why are we so protective of our kids? Number one, because they can teach us something that no one else can. Two, because they're precious to Jesus. I read this story. I'm grateful for little Rhoda who continued who continued to push, who was able to see something the rest of the adults couldn't. She keeps insisting, verse 16, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. The term amazed, Bible talk, their minds were blown, they were astounded, they were astonished. All these Christians in this person's house praying for God to move, and everyone was shocked when he did. What are you praying for right now? That you don't really have confidence that God's in control of. What are you praying for right now? What are you asking the Lord for? Or you seem to pray, pray much like I often do. God, I know you won't, but here's my request anyway. Third thing to consider in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of struggle, third thing we can see in the model of these Christians. Respond with 
Respond with prayer, respond with peace. Respond with faith. Let's keep going, last point. Motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. He said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. And all of a sudden, Peter becomes just a minuscule character in Scripture. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Most people think he left town out of embarrassment. Takes us in the next section, verse 20. Now he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. With one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, Josephus, an ancient historian, said he had a cloak woven with silver so it would glow with the, with the glare of the sun. Having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory, did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms. Yes, there is a Greek word for that used once in scripture. He was eaten by worms and died. And right there, the chapter begins with King Herod seeking to destroy the movement of God. And it ends with God destroying King Herod. But verse 24 is where we get our last point. Verse 24, big biblical but right there. See, they're going through hardship. The movement should shrink. Everyone's going to struggle. But look what happened. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The same thing that was happening in Antioch through all of their triumph, the same thing was happening in Judea through all of their tragedy. In the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your tragedy, how should you respond? Number one, respond with prayer. Number two, respond with peace. God's in control. Number three, respond with faith. God is moving. Even when you don't see it, God is moving. Number four, respond with confidence. Respond with confidence. Look how the Apostle Paul said it. Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart then in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul writes this to the people, to the early church and to us. When you're in the midst of struggle, when you just seem like tragedy surrounds that's the time you can have confidence in God's power. I guess my question is, where do you need to have confidence in God's plan this week in your life? 
Maybe it's in God's work in your life. Maybe it's in God's work in your family's life. Maybe it's in God's work in your home, in, within your church, in your community, and where God's calling. Where do you need confidence in God's plan? And once you have it, the question is, how will you respond? Will you panic? Flee? Will we respond as the early church? With prayer. With peace. With faith. That God is in the midst of this with you. And confidence. That when everything's said and done, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Uh, God, again, we come before you. God, many of us, many of us are in the place and position of Antioch. God, things are going well. We have great jobs. We have healthy homes. We have safety. God, we can see you at work in our church and in our community. God, many of us, it's easy because we consider our time with you as a triumph. But God, I know there's also people here, also people today who are in the midst of tragedy, who are fighting disease, who are grasping for their homes, worried about their kids, fearful about their future, and God, in those times, it's so hard to see what you're doing. So God, I pray for those people who are struggling today. God, that you give them what you gave Peter. Give them peace that is beyond human comprehension as they trust you. God, remind us to pray, not just at church on Sundays, but God, throughout our days, God, give us faith. Help us have confidence in your plan. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.